Welcome and thanks for joining us today on the Abundance Podcast. We'll go ahead and get started in prayer. Well, Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how good you are. And thank you for your promises. We just give this time to you, Holy Spirit. You are invited here. And we just thank you for guiding us. And I pray, God, that you will go beyond my words and that you'll minister to each person right where they're at and help them with uh, understanding your word, Lord. You're awesome. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're in part six of a series entitled The Sovereignty of God. To end this series, we're going to take a look at Paul's thorn in the flesh. In the last part, the book of Job and Paul's thorn in the flesh, we're going to be on the same episode. And I really felt that those two being together on the same episode would be really good for anyone to listen to. But then as the notes got put together, it definitely needed to be on two separate teachings. So we're going to end out this series today. But I hope through all this, you're able to get a little more of an understanding that God is really good. And some of the things that we've been taught may not be correct. And I hope that each person allows the Holy Spirit to minister to them because, man, he knows way more about this than I do. And I've never tried to say that I have all this figured out or anything like that. You know, I know that I'll continue to grow in this. I'll continue to learn more. The Holy Spirit will continue to reveal more to me. But right now where I'm at is that I can say without any doubt in my mind that God is good, that God is not the one that's putting things on us, that he's not bringing bad things into our lives to teach us something, that that is just not God. It's not his nature. It's not his person. It's not his character. That's just not who he is. In the Old Testament, God's wrath was poured out on man's sin, not man, but man's sin had to be judged. Thank God for Jesus because now We're in this age of grace where our sins are not being held against us. And why is that? Because they were put on Jesus. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus towards sin, I should say. And, you know, we lived in an awesome, awesome time. We live in an awesome time where we're going to see the biggest harvest of people coming to know Jesus that's ever come to know him. We're 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 in that time. We're in the time where we're going to see Jesus coming back any day. Man, if you have been keeping your eyes on Israel at all, Jesus could come back any day. And so it is really important for people to understand that, yes, God is sovereign. He's above all. He's supreme. He knows the end from the beginning. Yes, all those things. But what he wants to happen doesn't always happen. We can affect it. God has given us free will. He's given us choice. He doesn't lord over us. I mean, he is lord, but he doesn't force us to make the decisions to do things that we don't want to do. And I'm not going to go back over all the things that we've gone through in the previous five episodes, but, you know, man, this is just so important as we move forward in the day and hour that we live in. So to get things started here, I'd like to do a little recap on why we've been discussing the the topic of the sovereignty of God. And I kind of did that a little bit, but I just want to throw out some key points here. Us looking at the sovereignty of God, has it been to argue and to debate doctrine? No. <laughs> There's That is just a waste of time trying to debate doctrine with people. But that doesn't mean that we can't look at the word, we can't learn from it, that we can't become more rooted in what we believe. And it's okay if there ever comes a time where we have to defend our beliefs. It's okay to do that as long as we're doing that in love. And I hope that That's what you've taken away from this is that I'm trying to share this with you, not because I think I've got it all figured out 
very far from that. But I just want us to understand Jesus. Is us looking at the sovereignty of God, is it to be equipped to beat others over the head as we chant, you're wrong, I'm right? You know, No, no, that's not the goal. So what is the goal? It's to give others the chance to receive the same type of freedom that we've experienced when they come to us angry or confused and asking, why are these bad things happening in my life? And we can just share with them, you know what, I understand these things are terrible, but they're not from God. (laughs) Understanding the sovereignty of God is about knowing God's true nature and character so that we can help others let go of some of the misconceptions they've learned. It's got to be about knowing Jesus and who he is, what his nature is, what his character is. So to get things started here, a lot's been said about Paul's thorn in the flesh. Typically, it refers to something someone believes they have to like put up with, something that God gave them or that he's allowing to happen. But we've already established God doesn't do that. John 10.10, 10, the thief who is Satan does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I... Now it's referring to Jesus, have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So it's been said, well, God gave Paul a thorn in the flesh. God made him sick. And if God didn't heal Paul, then who are we to think he's going to heal us? So before we really get into any of the points or the topics that we're going to discuss in this teaching, let's just go in and let's see where it came from. So 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10 is where this phrase Paul's thorn in the flesh. So in verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in knees, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So from what we just read, this is where it's believed by some that Paul's thorn in the flesh was sickness. So that's what we'll be going over today. Through the word to see if there's any biblical grounds for this thorn in the flesh not being sickness. So Paul's thorn in the flesh, it's developed into somewhat of a common phrase that even non-believers are aware of. Mostly the way I'm aware that it gets used is to describe something that someone has to put up with or endure, just kind of like what we said, that there really isn't any solution and that that's just how it is. So a couple examples of this would be you know, where someone doesn't like the occupation they have, so they say, well, that's just my thorn in the flesh. <laughs> Some way that Sometimes that can be used jokingly. But another one is if someone had some sort of a speech impediment or a stutter. You know, they might say, well, I'm just like Moses. You know, if they grew up in church, they might have heard that. Uh, and that's just my thorn in the flesh. Well, how I'd respond to that is just like we discussed in part four, Moses didn't have a stuttering problem. And I know that sounds like blasphemy, but... In Acts 7, verse 22, and we went all this over all this in part 4, it says, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. So Moses not only had God as his source, but God to work through him, 
This verse shows us that he was already gifted in the natural because it says he was mighty in words. I believe Moses flat out lied to God and I have no idea how he thought he'd pull one over on God and that conclusion is not based off of one scripture. It's based off of several. But again, go back and listen to part four entitled Real Life Bible Stories where we not only went over some areas in the life of Moses, but we looked at many other common Bible stories that prove God's will does not always come to pass. Another example where someone might say, this is just my thorn in the flesh like Paul, would be in the case where someone is suffering from some sort of sickness and disease, where they've never been taught that sickness and disease is not from God. They actually may have been taught that God's trying to teach them something through it, that God's trying to purify them, through this experience that he's refining them. All those statements, first off, are not true. And all those are statements that someone may have heard from well-intentioned followers of Christ who are trying to comfort that individual. But if the root of what they're saying is completely inaccurate, it may bring them temporary belief, but it won't help them out long-term. And we discussed this in one of the other things, how... There's three steps when someone believes that something is from God. First off, it'll bring them temporary relief because they'll think, well, if this terrible thing happened in my life and God is sovereign, and and like I said, God is sovereign, but not in the way that this is saying. If someone believes that this is from God, it'll bring them temporary relief because they'll just think, well, I've just got to learn to trust God. You know, God knows all. He just, he knows what's best for me. But God didn't do that. So at the at the beginning, it'll bring comfort. Then that comfort can turn into confusion because, man, if, if God really loves me, if he's a loving father, I've got kids. I would never do that to my own kids. Why would God do this to me? Why would he bring this terrible thing into my life? Why would he have my daughter raped and killed? And, and that actually happened in my area. Um, a, a 13-year-old girl was raped and killed. Just terrible. And And praise God, my pastor got to do the funeral for the mother's side of the family and got to tell them this was not from God. And and he focused on the life of this 13-year-old girl and, and he just he's awesome at doing, um, we call them celebrations of life. We don't call them funerals. We call them celebrations of life. But man, just, you know, can you imagine if someone went into that funeral or that celebration of life? Well, they treated it like a funeral and they went in there and they said, this was God's will, that there's a reason for this, that God was doing this to teach this girl something and to teach you all something, and that somehow God's going to be glorified. Like, how, how would any of those people walk away from that experience and want to go towards God, want to want to pursue God? They wouldn't, unless they're crazy. I mean, I love Jesus, but if you told me that, I, I don't want nothing to do with him. And that's why it's just so important that we understand that this is, these experiences are not from God. These terrible things are not from God. And we got to quit telling people that. Again, I get a little fired up. You can go back into the first part of this series. And I told you some of my life, how my my uh, dad died when I was eight. My sister died when I was 15 from cancer. My dad died in a car accident. And my sister died of melanoma. And I saw her die in my own living room over the course of a couple months. And she moved up here from living down south in like South Carolina. And she moved up here in the last couple months of her life and just dwindled away. And man, I grew up kind of thinking like, why God? You know, I still love Jesus, but 
I just didn't understand. And so now that I have this revelation that, man, this wasn't from God, like I, it, it gets me fired up. So I'm not upset with people. That's not the goal here. I'm not, I'm not upset with you if you believe, even if I'm sharing, even if you've listened to all six of these episodes when this is all done and you still don't believe it with all the scriptural evidence that we've gone over, I'm not mad at you. I just, I, I, I hurt for you. I, I wish that you could receive this and that's just what I want. Again, I just want to point out something that sickness and disease, and I've already referred back to some previous episodes in this series, but in that first part of this series, we established where God truly is good. And then in the second part, we looked at what the Bible considers to be blessings and curses. And here's the spoiler. Sickness and disease is on the curse side. It's not on the blessing side. So as we begin in 2 Corinthians, where Paul mentions his thorn in the flesh, we'll see the topic of boasting being mentioned several times. And so you may be thinking, well, what's boasting got to do with Paul's thorn in the flesh? So in order to answer that, we're actually going to go back to chapter 10 to see why Paul, the writer of 2 Corinthians, mentions boasting. So here we go. We're going to talk about Paul's thorn in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 10.1 Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. So Paul's telling us that his desire is to walk in that same meekness and gentleness that Jesus walked in, but because of understanding and relationship with Jesus, boldness is produced. So we're going to go forward, just for time's sake, we're going to go forward to 2 Corinthians 10 verse 8. For even if I should boast... Somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us. And here we go. Why did Jesus give us authority? For edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. Verse 12. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Verse 18. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. So in these last couple of scriptures, it, it talks about, it says the word commends and commending ourselves is like boasting. You know, in verse 12, he talks about how we don't compare ourselves with those who like to boast about themselves. And that's what he's talking about. And that'll make more sense here in a moment. So if you were to read from 2 Corinthians 10, 1 on through and I know we skipped over some verses and we just kind of did over that for time's sake. I'm not trying to make the word say what I want it to say. And I encourage you to go back over and read it so that you know that's not what I'm trying to do. Paul talks about the topic of boasting in more scriptures than actually what I brought up here. And the exact context of what Paul's talking about is a little bit different, but it still applies for where we're going in chapters 11 through 12. So 2 Corinthians 11 12 through 13 says, But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may be cut off, excuse me, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying that others are wanting to boast about themselves and what they've done. But why is it important not to boast? Because 2 Corinthians 10, 17 through 18 says, But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. 
For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. So what's the dictionary definition of the word commend? It just means to present, to mention, or praise as worthy of confidence, to notice, to recommend, to entrust, to give, or to put in charge. So where should commending come from? It should come from God. It shouldn't come from us, especially as believers. (laughs) It's not a godly principle to try and promote ourselves. So on that note, there's nothing wrong with receiving a compliment from someone. You know, when we know that ultimately the reason we have that ability is because of God. But at the same time, we don't need to over-spiritualize everything. (laughs) If someone comes and gives you a compliment, you know, it's okay to say, thank you. (laughs) You know, you don't need to say, oh, no, brother, the only reason I can do anything is because of Almighty God. And I'm trying to do my God, my, my got to have that D on the end there and the W, the G-A-W-D. Although that statement is true and that type of response can be very genuine and spoken from the right heart, it's very easy for that comment to, to develop into a religious type of response and not from the right heart. What I'm trying to say is that God's just fine with you saying thank you to a compliment. It doesn't, it doesn't bother him. You know, someone sings or something like that. And and all churches have someone that sings probably. So this is just a a universal example. You know, if someone gets up there and sings a solo or or sings a song and someone comes up to them and and tries to give them a compliment, that individual doesn't have to deflect the blame. You know, it's okay for them to just say thank you. They don't have to be like, oh, no, no, no. Oh, Oh, I can do nothing. I can do nothing without Jesus. And yeah, that's true. But It'd be like someone giving a compliment and that person almost debasing themselves. And on the surface, it might sound good. It might sound like it's really for the praise of God. But at the end of the day, it's really that person kind of seeking for a compliment because little does anybody else know they've got 12 years of operatic training that they've been working with a teacher and trying to develop their voice. And and it's okay to do that. It's okay to try and improve the gift that God's given you, but then to turn around and just for the sake of sounding religious, say, oh, no, no, no. Oh, I, oh, I can do nothing. I am nothing. You know, that's, it's just, it's pride. We just shouldn't do that. <laughs> it's all got to be from the right heart. So I hope that you're getting what I'm saying. I was just trying to give some sort of an example. God's okay with us developing the gifts that he's given us. As long as we know in our heart that it came from him, it's okay for us to just say thank you to a positive response to what we've done, you know, whether it's singing or it's it's your job, you know, it, it doesn't have to be some church type of activity. It can be, you know what, this is my job, I do this, and I'm doing it the best of my ability for the Lord. And if someone gives you a compliment, it's okay to receive it. It doesn't, God's not moved off the throne thinking, well, how dare he or she take credit for something that I gave them. I gave him the the credit to even, or I gave him the ability even to breathe, you know, <laughs> to even get out of bed. If it wasn't for me, you know, God's not doing that. He It, it doesn't move God. It's okay. Because ultimately, if it's truly about Jesus and his name glorified, then boasting in ourselves won't even be a possibility. So now we're going to go ahead and read right through 2 Corinthians 11 verse 16 through chapter 12, verse 13. And this will really be good for us all, but specifically for those who've never read where this doctrine of Paul's thorn in the flesh came from. 
So verse 16 in chapter 11. I say again, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. So again, here's this is why we did all that on the topic of boasting, how Paul talked about boasting a little bit, mentioned it in chapters 10 and 11. So here we are. Otherwise, we're, we're in 16 again, halfway through. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, <laughs> but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting, seeing that many boast according to the flesh. I also will boast, for you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. <laughs> Paul's hilarious. <laughs> For you put up with it <laughs> if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. To our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. <laughs> Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, and labor's more abundant. <laughs> I can't stop laughing. <laughs> in stripes above measure, in prisons, more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. And journeys often, and perils in of water, and perils of robbers, and perils of my own countrymen, and perils of the Gentiles, and perils in the city, and perils in the wilderness, and perils in the sea, and perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, and sleeplessness often, and hunger and thirst, and fastings often, and cold and nakedness, besides the other things what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak, who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation. If I must boast, I will boast the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, something like that, the king, was guarding the city of Damascenes, Damascenes. Now, I don't know how to pronounce a lot of these words. If you haven't got that already, yeah, just just keep rolling with me. Don't worry about the pronunciation on names and words and um, cities and all that stuff. So uh, verse 32, at the end of it, with a garrison desiring to arrest me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. So chapter 12, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or whether out of the body, I do not know. God knows such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one, I will boast. Yet of myself, I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. 
And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you, for nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. So 2 Corinthians 11.16. Now we're going to do a little recap. So 11 verse 16, it says, I say again, let no one think of me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying, I'm not a fool. I don't boast about myself. That's just not something I do. But for now, as an example, look at me like the fools you've already been listening to. (laughs) Because I'm going to boast like they do to prove a point. So in verse 17, what I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. So he's Paul's saying, what I'm about to say is not inspired by God. <laughs> when we boast, our confidence is not found in Jesus. It's found in our works, what we do or what we don't do. So here's the meaning. God's not telling Paul to boast. So again, Paul's just saying, I'm about to boast in myself to prove a point, but boasting is foolishness. So verse 18 through 21, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. <laughs> For you put up with it if, if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. To our shame, I say that we were too weak for that, but in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. I know that's a lot. (laughs) He's talking about boasting a lot here, but there's a reason. And it actually ties right in with Paul's thorn in the flesh. You know, we're not just going over this just to try and, you know, sound smart or, hey, you know, this is what this is talking about in the Bible. And then this has totally nothing to do with Paul's thorn in the flesh. This is directly related. And you're going to see that in a moment. So what is boasting according to the flesh? It's bragging about what you do or you don't do, where someone takes the glory away from God, and as it says in those scriptures, exalting himself. Because without God, you wouldn't even be able to breathe, walk, you know, anything like that. So Paul says, I also will boast. In whatever anyone is bold, I'm speaking foolishly, but I'm bold also. Anyone that thinks they have something to brag about in comparison to me, and this is Paul, again, I'm speaking like a fool, which is not from the Lord. I'm actually talking like an idiot or a fool on purpose to prove a point because otherwise you'd overlook what I'm trying to tell you. (laughs) 
And that that's my that's my version of it. But whatever you think you can brag about, it's got nothing on what I've done. And and that's the, that's the message Paul's saying. Again, it's not from God, but that's what he's trying to share. Now, verse 22 through 29, and this is where he lists all the things that he's gone through. And I'm going to do a little foreshadowing here. This is all the infirmities that he's referring to. Verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, and deaths often. From the Jews five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and the day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. In weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes up, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So I don't know how we could overlook all the things Paul just mentioned, but just in case, let's take a look at a few. So when he says, in prisons more frequently, you know, Paul knew when he visited towns, it was just a matter of time before he got locked up. And why was that? Because he was preaching the gospel. He says, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. So back in that time, they were whipped 39 times because the 40th one was said to lead to death. And a lot of times people died just from those 39 stripes. I shouldn't say just. (laughs) Three times beaten with rods. So this is where they'd beat people with rods. And, you know, I don't know exactly what type of quote unquote rod they use but it'd be almost like equivalent to like a metal rod or a very firm, uh, solid tree branch or something like that. Something that doesn't have a lot of bend to it. It's like getting hit with a baseball bat, but you know, I'm sure I would guess thinner. Maybe not. Sometimes they would string people up and hit them on their feet and a lot of times would break the bones in their feet. So he says, once I was stoned, and, and we'll actually talk about this a little later, three times shipwrecked and a night and a day in the deep. In perils of waters, robbers in the city and in the wilderness. So perils just simply means danger. So I just want to point something out from this long list of persecutions that Paul endured. I want to point out that none of these things are in the category of sickness. So Paul continues on with his foolish boasting in verse 29 through 30. So who is weak? And am I not weak? Who is made to stumble? And I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things, and I want to point out that that's plural, the things which concern my infirmity. Infirmity, not infirmities, not in the plural sense. So to keep all this in the proper context, Paul is boasting in the things, again, the plural form, that he just listed off, calling them as a whole my infirmity. So all these things, perils, the being stoned, being whipped, being imprisoned. He's calling all those infirmities, that's the way he was referring to them, he's putting them all in the category in a clump, calling them my infirmity. And that is not in the plural form. So an example, just a way that I want to try to help you understand that better, because I know I'm probably not explaining that the best. So if someone owned 40 acres of land, 
You know, that would be in the plural form. They'd say 40 acres, plural, with an S on the, on the end. But if they were asked, you know, whose land is this? They would say, well, this is my land. And they wouldn't say lands. They wouldn't say the plural form. They would just say, well, this is my land because they're putting it in a clump. It's my land. So he or she would put the total amount of 40 acres in the category of my land. So we'll continue on in verse 31 in a moment. But to be able to see that Paul is in fact calling the list of things he's endured, his infirmities, we're going to skip forward. And again, we'll come back to verse 31, but we're going to skip forward to chapter 12, verse 5. And it says, Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. And that's in the plural. So he's saying, I will boast in my infirmities, and that is the long list that we just read. It's in chapter 11, verse 20 through to 28. He's putting all those all those hardships in a clump, and he's calling them his infirmities. And actually, he said it was his infirmity, but we're, we're putting it like that. Chapter 12, verse 9, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Again, he's referring to the list of things he's gone through that he was boasting like a fool about earlier. So back to where we left off in verse 31. So chapter 11, verse 31. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of Damascenes, I don't know, with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. 12.1. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. So I'm pointing out visions and revelations of the Lord. So later in verse 7, Paul uses the same phrasing or terminology by referring to his abundance of revelations. You know, in verse 1 he says, I will come to visions and revelations. And then in verse 7, he refers to his abundance of revelations. So verse 2, and we're going to read through verse 6. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, Yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. Which again is the long list in eleven, chapter 11, verse 23 through 28. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. For I will speak the truth, but I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. So Paul says in verse 6, lest anyone should think of me. He, he, he points out that it's him. So what I'm about to share you, with you is just my opinion. I've heard different interpretations of it from pastors that I've gleaned a lot from, you know, well-versed people on this topic. You know, they don't believe that God is bringing about sickness and death on people. You know, they believe they have a proper understanding of the sovereignty of God. But just on this one little part here within this couple verses, I've heard it both ways. And so I'm just giving you my opinion of what I believe the word's saying. 
But anyways, I believe Paul is saying that he's the one that was caught up into paradise. But he doesn't want to come across as boasting because he knows it had nothing to do with him. He boasted about his infirmities in 11 verse 22 through 28. And he did that only to prove a point. But with this example, where he went up into the third heaven, he wants to stay away from any appearance of boasting. So he says, I know a man, you know, of course he knows a man. It was him, you know, and again, that's my opinion. I believe that's what Paul's saying. But I want to point out with this particular point, my interpretation of whether Paul is referring to himself or someone else who was caught up in the third heaven, regardless of whether that's correct or incorrect with this one small particular point, it doesn't take away from the main topic we're discussing in that God didn't give Paul his thorn in the flesh. You know, all that kind of reminds me of in the book of Job, where we looked at where Elihu comes on the scene in chapter 32 and that discussion about how Elihu is the author and the narrator of the book of Job and how in verses 15 and 16, Elihu is talking, excuse me, and I'm going off the top of my head. I'm not going back in my notes. But in chapter 32, the author picks up his speech. Then in verse 6, in the latter part of verse 6, Elihu begins to speak. Then in verse, I believe it's 15, the author picks back up for verses 15 and 16. And we know that because of the third person narrative form. It says like they and them. And he uses that type of terminology four times. But in the middle of it, after he uses like they and them, And then in the middle of it, he says, but I, and then he continues on and uses two more words in that third person. So he he throws a first person narrative in the middle of that. And that's one of several ways that we can see that Elihu is the narrator and author of the book of Job. So that kind of reminds me of that where Paul, he just got done boasting and he doesn't want to give any appearance of boasting because the whole purpose of why he was boasting was to prove a point to the people he was writing to because if he didn't boast like the other people, they wouldn't listen to him. They'd overlook him. So he did that to prove a point to be like, Hey, all these people that you're looking up to, they've got nothing on what I've done, you know? And I'm telling you, boasting is stupid. It's not of God, but in order for me to get your attention so that you'll listen to what I'm trying to tell you, I'm going to (laughs) boast. I'm going to, I'm going to act as a fool. So Anyways, that just kind of reminds me of in this part where Paul says, but I, in, and this is, I think in verse 28, but I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And I believe he was saying that because he was the one caught up in the third heaven, but he didn't want to make himself out to be more important than Jesus himself. He didn't want to put himself on a platform. So anyways, Hopefully you get the gist of what I'm saying, but we're going to move on again, regardless of whether I'm right or wrong. It doesn't take away from the whole main point that God did not give Paul his thorn in the flesh. So verse seven, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. So Before we get to the main point of this scripture, let's take a look at how verse 7 connects to what Paul just got done saying in the previous few verses. So verse 7, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations. So lest I should be exalted is not talking about Paul having a pride issue and God having to keep him humble. You know, that's that's what you hear a lot of. Yeah, 
man, Paul had a real pride issue. That's why God brought him this uh, thorn in the flesh. That it, it's to keep him humble. <laughs> no, no, you know, pr- Paul didn't have a pride issue. It's saying Paul was becoming so respected and honored by others from the abundance of revelations he was receiving that this thorn in the flesh was given to try and make the gospel less attractive to others. You know, when we give a revelation that we are God's hands and feet, that God has given us the elementary principle and foundational teaching of laying on of hands, that we're to go and heal the sick, to lay our hands on them, to heal them. And it's not us, it's God, but it's the power working through us because God's in heaven. He's already done everything he's going to do. And how does it get to other people? Well, he works through us. And so, you know, if someone comes and is a non-believer and they see us in faith, lay hands on someone, instantly see a miracle happen and, and they, you know, whatever the case may be, and they're healed, man, I think that's going to be attractive to some someone else. And so that's what was happening. Paul was becoming so respected and honored by others that it was just really attractive. So what happened? And I'm getting ahead of myself, but a messenger of Satan came to buffet him to try and make it less attractive to others. Because it's attractive to others that no matter what gets thrown at us, that it doesn't affect us. You know, trials and tribulations, they rolled off of Paul's back like water on a duck's back. I mean, you know, just think of all those things that he listed. He wasn't griping and complaining. Paul didn't hold his life dear. He thought it'd be, he wanted to be in heaven, but it'd be better for him to be with us for the gospel's sake. So he knew that persecutions and, and trials and all that were going to come against him. But, and yet he still followed through. So Paul's thorn in the flesh was given to him so that he wasn't exalted above measure. So let me add, it wasn't from God. So what was Paul's thorn in the flesh? So let's first take a look at other scriptural examples where similar phrasing has been used in relation to a thorn in the flesh. So Numbers 33, 55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. So God tells his people to drive out the inhabitants of the land, but if you don't, they will be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides. So this applies to our next scripture. Judges 2, 1 through 3. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bacham and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your father. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down your altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side and their God shall be a snare to you. And actually, if you read Judges chapter one, I actually see 10 different accounts where they didn't drive out the inhabitants of the land. You know, if you want to read them for yourselves, they're in Judges chapter one, verses 19, 21, 25, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, and 33. And it may even be more than that because in verse 33, it gives two different accounts. So at least 11 different accounts where they didn't drive out the inhabitants of the land that God had told them to do. So again, we're looking at other scriptural examples where this phrasing thorn in the flesh or thorn in the side has been used. So Joshua 23, 13. 
Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Ezekiel 28:24. And there shall no longer be a pricking briar or a painful thorn for the house of Israel from among all who are around them, who despise them, then they shall know that I am the Lord your God. And the last one, 2 Samuel 23, 6, But the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. So the phrase thorn in the flesh, it's equivalent to someone saying today, you know, you're a pain in the butt. <laughs> and in this day and age, you know, we don't use the phrase, you know, thorn in the flesh or anything like that. But in those days, it was an expression that they knew because those people, they knew the Old Testament, you know, God's God's chosen people, they knew, you know, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible and, you know, all those those Old Testament books, a lot of them knew them by heart. And so when they said this phrasing, most likely they knew what Paul was referring to. So, you know, today it kind of loses its translation or whatever the phrasing, you know, because we're, we don't really use that terminology. But we would say, you know, in today's day and age, if, if someone said, you're a pain in the butt you know, they'd know what you meant. <laughs> but we have a hard time understanding that. We come up with doctrines saying that Paul's thorn in the flesh was a sickness when that's not what that was. This, this It's not what that's saying. So what was Paul's thorn in the flesh? You know, here's, here's the main thing. What was his thorn in the flesh? It was the trials and persecution Paul was having to endure for the sake of the gospel. It was not sickness. And where did these persecutions come from? So here's a little recap of what we've already discussed in this Sovereignty of God teaching. John 10.10, 10, I already said it. The thief, Satan, does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I, Jesus, have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. John, or excuse me, James 1.13-14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he, talking of you and I, is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Acts 10.38 How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good, not bad, but doing good and healing all, who were oppressed by the devil. It wasn't God. Who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So back to verse 7. A thorn in the flesh, and here's the key, was given to me a messenger of Satan, not a messenger of God, okay, to buffet me. So who gave it to Paul? It was Satan. It wasn't God. And I can't, I know I'm saying that over and over, but I mean, that's that's the hang up with this sovereignty of God, this Paul's thorn in the flesh teaching. I mean, a lot of the sovereignty of God uh, foundation comes from Paul's thorn in the flesh, it's almost like, you know, Jesus is to be our cornerstone. He's to be our rock and you build your foundation on him. Well, this Paul's thorn in the flesh has really been the, the cornerstone of the rock. Well, it's it's sand, but it's been the foundation for this extreme sovereignty of God teaching. Again, God is sovereign. He is above all. He's supreme. He knows the end from the beginning. He's independent. Yes, he is all those things. But God doesn't force us to do things any certain way. He has given us a choice. He's given us free will. 
So it wasn't a messenger of God. It was a messenger of Satan that buffeted Paul. So this is really equivalent to what we just went over in the last episode on the book of Job. And I've already made reference to it once, but you know, where did the calamity that came against Job come from? Job 2.3 says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him. So here's the key. Although you, and he's talking to Satan, incited me, God, against him to destroy him without cause. So God points out, it was you, Satan. It wasn't me. You deceived him into thinking it was me who was afflicting him. So this is the key. If we place value on the word of God more than we do our pastor or parents or friends or grandparents, whoever it might be, who all their lives told us that bad things happen for reason and that bad things come from God, which is a total misrepresentation of the book of Job. If we believe the Bible to be the absolute truth, then God himself saying, I didn't do those things. It was Satan, you know, like we just read. He said, you, Satan, incited me against him. If we believe the Bible to be the absolute truth, then God himself saying, I didn't do those things. It was Satan. That should really bear witness with us. That should mean something. And here's the question. When God said he didn't do it, is that enough for you? And for me, it is. Again, remember, good God, bad devil. So back to verse 7 again. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. So I'm not trying to overcomplicate things, but the word messenger used in verse 7 is, is the same Greek word used for angel. Now we won't get into that, but a couple examples where that same word is used, and you can look these up on your own, just write them down, is in Luke 1, 13, Galatians 4, 14, and 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14. And there's more than three, that's just you know, three that I'm trying to give you. So what was this messenger of Satan doing? You know, he was buffeting Paul. Well, what the heck does buffet mean? <laughs> and I had to look it up. What's the dictionary definition of buffet? It means to strike as with the hand or fist, to strike against or push repeatedly. So keyword repeatedly to contend against, to battle or to fight. So now I don't personally believe this messenger of Satan, this demon, was actually physically beating or striking Paul himself, okay? Now, I'm not saying that couldn't have happened. I'm just saying I believe the way this messenger of Satan was bringing about demonic oppression on Paul was through other people, you know, just like how God moves through us, where his hands and feet. Well, it's the same thing with the devil. The devil uses people and everything ultimately is, it's not a battle against flesh and blood. It's a battle against spiritual forces, against evil principalities, and, and I'm not quoting the scripture, but hopefully you get the gist of what I'm saying. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. So Satan was influencing people to bring persecution against Paul. And remember, what did Paul just refer to as his quote-unquote infirmities? And it was all those things that we read about in verse 20 through to 28. So this angel or demon of Satan was striking, contending, fighting against Paul repeatedly, and Satan was using people. So Paul refers to all these persecutions as a whole as a thorn in the flesh. Now, I'm going to say that one again. Because Satan was using people to come against Paul all the time. Because remember, what did he list as his infirmities? You know, get, getting stoned, getting put in prison, getting 
hit with rods, getting, you know, all these different things. Paul was referring to all these things as a whole as a thorn in the flesh. And again, that expression is just like we would use today, but the way we'd use it today is say, you're a pain in the butt. So that individual themselves aren't the pain in the butt, (laughs) like the expression goes. It's what's being done to that individual that is the irritant, the pain in the butt. So what did Paul do? Because if the persecutions or infirmities Paul was enduring were from God, of course Paul would have just enjoyed it. I mean, like we've said, you know, if our headache was from God, you know, why would we want to even take a Tylenol? Why wouldn't we just glory in it? You know, if if cancer was from God, why would we try and go have chemotherapy or try and get it treated or any type of, you know, if you got a cut on your hand, why would you even put a Band-Aid on it? Why wouldn't you just glory? Oh, this cut on my hand is from God. And, and no, because you'd bleed out. It's not God's will for you to die. Christ has come, Jesus has come to give us life and life more abundantly. So Paul himself wouldn't have tried to have gone against the will of God. But what does the word say? Third John 1, 2 says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. So 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 9, through the first part of uh, verse 9. Concerning this thing, so again, I'm just trying to put it in, in today's terminology. So concerning this thing, which would be that pain in the butt, that thorn in the flesh, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he, talking about God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weaknesses. So 2 Timothy three twelve. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So it's important we see that if we live godly in Christ Jesus, it's a guarantee that we'll suffer persecution. You know, it's not a might. You know, we'll suffer persecution if we're seeking after Jesus. John 16, 33, and this is Jesus speaking. He says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. And in the world you will doesn't say will not. He says, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So here's the key. We are not redeemed from persecutions, but we are redeemed from sickness. Okay. So again, Paul's pointing out these thorn in the flesh. He asked God to take it away, but God said, my grace is sufficient for you because it wasn't a sickness because we are redeemed. Christ, it's in the atonement. Christ has redeemed us from sickness and disease. But what God has not redeemed us from is from persecutions, because the word says, just like we just read, you will suffer persecution. And that was that was from Jesus. And that was to us. So if you don't believe that we've been redeemed from sickness and disease, let's take a look at Psalm 103. Psalm 103, 1 through 3. Now this is a pretty common church song, if you will. And, and here it goes. And I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be sarcastic. I'm just, you know, bless the Lord, oh my soul and all that is within me, bless his holy name. You know, that's a song that we sing if you grew up in church and then it continues on. So that was, that was verse one. It was part of verse one. It says, bless the Lord, oh my soul and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, oh my soul and forget not all not some, but all his benefits. So here's a list of God's benefits that we have access to as a result of trusting in Jesus. So verse three, who forgives 
all your iniquities and just iniquities are your sins. So Jesus has already forgiven your sin. It's our job just to receive the free gift of righteousness. By grace, through faith, receive Jesus. It's not of your works, lest anyone should boast. It's just about receiving this free gift. And you know what? We don't even actually have to ask for our sins to forgive. And you know, I know that's a common thing. We say, God, forgive me of my sins. But what this scripture is saying is he has already forgiven us all of our sins. When Jesus died at the cross, he forgave us all of our sins. So we don't actually have to ask for our sins to be forgiven. I understand that gets said, but all we have to do is receive the free gift of righteousness. But I just want to point out, if you've trusted in Jesus, do you believe Jesus forgave all your sins? And if you answered yes, you know, that's great. But what I want to ask of you now is just to don't stop reading, you know, keep reading. Verse three, in the second part of verse three, who heals all your diseases, not some, he heals all your diseases. So if you believe it's true that Jesus forgave all your sins, then it has to be true that Jesus healed all your diseases. Healed, past tense. We can't say one part of the verse is true and the second part doesn't apply. It's our choice whether we believe it to be true and receive it by faith. But whether we take a hold of what's already been made available towards us, our choice doesn't change the fact that Jesus has forgiven all of our sins and healed all of our diseases already. It's already done. God's not going to come off, Jesus is not going to come off his throne and do it again. He's not going to come down and die on the cross again. He's already done it. It was all accomplished in the atonement of Jesus. So again, here's the key. God told Paul, you're not redeemed from persecutions, but my grace is sufficient. So for the remaining scriptures, even if you're still unsure that the word infirmities is referring to the persecutions and the hardship that Paul endured, for the time being, just consider that he's not talking about sickness. You know, I, I know that's what we want to hold on to sometimes is that, no, these infirmities, it's sickness. That's what it means. That's what infirmities means. It means sickness. Well, just for the time being, just consider that he's not talking about sickness. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, it says, And he, referring to God, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weaknesses. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So it says, I will rather boast in my infirmities. So he's back to using the same wording he did when he was boasting as a fool about his infirmities in chapter 11. And that was his stripes, prisons, beaten with rods, etc. All those things he listed. So then he says, I take pleasure in my infirmities. And he continues on listing things, reproaches, needs, persecutions, and distresses. So if we stay consistent with how Paul has used the word infirmities, we won't view it as a sickness. And if we don't view the word infirmities as having anything to do with sickness, but rather labeling all the persecutions he's endured and placing them in a category named infirmities, that will stay consistent with what he's just listing. Because reproaches, needs, persecutions, and distresses that he just listed, none of those have anything to do with sickness. In fact, Paul hasn't referred to sickness at any point throughout everything that we've read today. <laughs> 
It's never mentioned. Sickness is not brought up. So the last verse we're going to look at is 2 Corinthians 12, 11. I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. So again, right after listing these five things that he takes pleasure in, he goes right back to saying he's acting like a fool by boasting. So 11, verse 17 through 18. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were, foolishly in this confidence of boasting, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. In this last scripture that we said, we just kind of went back to chapter 11, but the scripture that we were that we're on right now, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 11, at the end of that, he says, though I am nothing. So he ends all of this foolish boasting by saying how in himself, he has nothing to boast about because in and of himself, he is nothing. It's all because of God. So how about in another scripture? Where does he kind of put this in perspective? And we're going to go to Philippians 3, 7 through 8. And, you know, when we read, I'm reading out of the new King James version, but for this verse, we're going to use the amplified version. It says, but whatever former things were gains to me, as I thought then, these things, once regarded as advancements in merit, I have come to consider as loss, absolutely worthless for the sake of Christ and the purpose which he has given my life. But more than that, I count everything as loss compared to the priceless privilege and supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and of growing more deeply and thoroughly acquainted with him, a joy unequaled. For his, <laughs> this is awesome, for his sake I have lost everything and I consider it all garbage. Now the King James Version says I consider it all dung, which is poop, so that I may gain Christ. So I just want to point out through all that, the focus can't be on us. It has to point back to Jesus. And that's why Paul says, you know, he just went through in 2 Corinthians 11, he was boasting to try and prove a point. He wasn't doing that for his own sake. He was doing that for the people that he was writing to because he wanted them to get a grip of what he was saying. And then later on, he says, I am nothing. And that wasn't false humility. That was just him with the right heart saying, you know what? All these things have happened, but paired with this scripture in Philippians 3, all that stuff doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is Jesus, because without him, I am nothing. But in him, I want to point out for us today, but in Jesus, we're everything. <laughs> That's awesome right there. If you forget everything that you, you've been listening to, if all you take away from it is, yes, without Jesus, I am nothing, but because I'm never without him, because he's in me, <laughs> I am everything. I'm equipped for everything that I'm going to that I'm going to come against in this world. Why? Because Christ is in me and I'm in him. It's the hope of glory. Anyways, so kind of to wrap these thoughts out, my question is other than because we were taught that Paul's thorn in the flesh was a sickness, how could we any longer try to say that it was a sickness that was put on Paul by God? You know, it's just it's just so obvious once we have an understanding of what the word's saying. And again, I've been turned back on to God for the last eight years. It's taken me eight years to get this. So, I, you know, I, and, and if you've been a Christian for 50, 60, 70 years and you haven't got this, it's okay. Move forward. 
you know, forget the past. Today's the first day of the rest of your life. And man, your latter days are going to be better than the first. It's going to be awesome. So let's go ahead and take a look at a couple alternate explanations for Paul's thorn in the flesh. One of the main reasons people think Paul's thorn in the flesh was sickness is because of the use of the word infirmities. So we just went over the context and the way that Paul was using the word infirmities. And I feel confident enough to conclude that Paul in no way intended for the word infirmities to be directed towards sickness or disease. So we're probably all aware that the meaning of a word can change over time. So as an example, an obvious word where the meaning has changed over time is the word gay. You know, 40 to 50 years ago, it meant joyful, carefree, happy, bright and showy. You know, now it's the label put on someone who's chosen to live a lifestyle of homosexuality. So back to infirmities. The presumption is that it automatically is referring to some type of sickness. So today the word infirmity does mean sickness. And the place where the sick are cared for has even become known as an infirmary. You know, and that's taken from that word infirmity. Again, just like we already discussed, Paul was using the word to describe all the persecutions and hardships he endured for the sake of the gospel. And again, just I know we just went over it a million times and you don't need me to do this, but not to be repetitive, just to kind of make sure we're all following along. The hardships that he endured were all the stripes and the prisons and the beaten with rods and all the things he listed in verses 20 through 28, chapter 11. And whether the confusion is because back when the King James Version was translated, the word infirmities had a different meaning. And over time, as the meaning of that word changed, it was used by well-intentioned believers who paired it up with the extreme sovereignty of God doctrine. I can't definitively say. I don't know exactly why that happened. But either way, the word infirmity has other meanings. And so some other meanings of the word infirmity, just by dictionary definition's sake, are lack, inadequacy, weak, And again, the way Paul was using it was describe the hardships that were coming against him. But again, as a whole, the word infirmity does just not mean sickness by itself, but it can mean sickness in today's terminology. Next, one of the most common ideas is that Paul had some sort of eye disease. So whether it could have been an eye disease or fading vision or anywhere in between, whatever the quote-unquote eye issue could have been, that's not what we're going to be looking at. But simply in a broader sense, we're just going to look at how probable it was that Paul had an eye issue. And with the way I just explained that, you might be surprised to hear, I actually agree that it was highly possible, maybe even probable, that Paul had an issue with his eyes. But the thing is, it was definitely not in the way it's been proposed. I do not believe Paul had any type of eye disease or regular issue with his vision, but rather it was a momentary eye issue. And I say, quote unquote issue, you'll understand what I'm talking about here. So here's something to consider. The core of what we'll be looking at here is in Galatians 4, 13 through 15. But first I want to point something out from verse 12 in Galatians 4. And this is, that's, you know, the verse before what we're going to be looking at through 13 through 15. But verse 12 says, brethren, I urge you to become like me for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. And then the next verse is chapter 13, and that's where we'll be going in a moment. But I want to point out that Paul used the word injured to make a point. So here we go. Galatians 4, 
and we'll come back to that, but Galatians 4, 13 through 15. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. In my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Paul specifically uses the phrases physical infirmity and my trial, which was in my flesh. So the first one in verse 13, physical infirmity. So in this example, he specifies that it's a physical infirmity. You know, he's not talking about a hardship or a challenge that we just went over, you know, in 2 Corinthians 11. That's not what he's referring to. He specifically is saying it's a physical infirmity. Now back to verse 12, when you read it in context, it doesn't fit in with verses 13 through 15, meaning he's not mentioning injury and then continuing on. You know, it's not in that way. And go back and read it. You'll see what I'm talking about. But however, Paul mentions something I want to point out. So in verse 12, he says, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. So what I'm wanting to point out is that Paul says the word injured in verse 12, and then he makes the transition into verse 13, talking about physical infirmity. Again, In verse 13, he's specifying it's a physical infirmity. I mean, really, thank God he said it was a physical infirmity, especially with all the confusion that's come from the use of the word infirmity with Paul's thorn in the flesh. But I believe when Paul used the word injured in verse 12, and then he transitions into talking about the physical infirmity in verse 13, I believe he was doing it for a reason. Because what he'd been talking about in the verses leading up to 12 had nothing to do with any type of physical issue. I believe Paul was using the word injury as like a transition into verse 13. So here's an example of what I'm talking about. So my family, we live a couple blocks away from an elementary school and we have three kids under the age of four. Now at this elementary school, that's just a couple blocks away, you know, they've got a giant playground area with toys and equipment for young kids of all ages to, to be entertained. So It has jungle gyms and swings and slides and basketball courts and and all that type of stuff. And the nice thing is it's even completely fenced in with only one way in and out of the the general area. So that definitely is a nice thing to have for a parent. You know, they can have a little peace of mind and they don't have to, you know, we already got to kind of have our head on a swivel, but not as much because there's only only one way in, one way out. Like a child's prison. (laughs) Bad joke. So anyways... So I'd like to make the comparison with what Paul is talking about in verses 12 and then in verse 13 to kind of what I'm talking about with this playground. Because if I were telling someone how awesome this playground is, and then I transition my discussion into how we may have our oldest daughter go to school there when it's time for her to start start kindergarten. Now, those two things are completely separate, you know. Our daughter Lila enjoying playing there at their playground when school's not in session. It's just because we live close by, we can take her there. And me talking about how she might go to school there when she's of age to be able to start kindergarten. Those two things in context aren't directly connected to each other other than it being at the same facility where not only where she plays, but also where school would be. So yeah, that that is the common factor, but they, they don't have anything to do with each other. So Because they have that common element of being at the same facility, in conversation, 
it was an easy transition to go from talking about the kids playing on the playground to talking about Lila possibly going to school there. So that's maybe not the best example, but I that's what I believe Paul was doing here. It's important to remember that it was man that put the chapter and verse indicators in the Bible to help with finding where scripture was located. Paul is writing a letter, which is just like someone sitting down and having a conversation with another person, or in this situation, a group of people referred to as the Galatians. Now this point, whether you agree with it or not, with how I'm making the comparison in verse 12 to 13, whether you agree with that or not, that shouldn't take away from all the other things we've talked about. It was just something I noticed and I believe to be true as as being part of the letter Paul wrote. So I just wanted to point that out. But back to the main point of whether Paul had an issue with his eyes. Verse 14, And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Now I believe this trial, which was in his flesh, that Paul just pointed out and said it was in his flesh, was referring to the fact that he had just been stoned the day before. And when I say stoned, my my pastor always says, and I'm not talking about weed, he was just stoned as an attempt to take his life. And whether he was dead or he was so close to dead that they thought he was either going to die or he was dead, you know, the Bible doesn't really share it. It doesn't really say that. I personally think he was dead. And just to help us better understand that, Let's check out the account in Acts to better understand what I'm talking about. So again, we're talking about the sovereignty of God and how Paul's thorn in the flesh has contributed to people thinking God is a God that brings hardships into our lives. So we're going to look at Acts 14 verses 11 through 15. And we're picking up where Paul had just healed a crippled man in the town of Lystra. So verse 11. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men, and Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all the things that are in them. So we're going to forward to verse 19. Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city And the next day, he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Here's what we can take away from that. So Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, all of those are cities from the region of Galatia, which we're we're reading the book of Galatians. So, you know, these are the Galatians. So this is where Paul was speaking in Galatians chapter 4. So Paul had just been stoned. And like I said, if he wasn't dead, he was so close to dead that the people stoning him as the word says, supposed him to be dead. Then it says, but then the disciples gathered around him and Paul rose up and the next day went to Derby. So Derby was at least 20 miles from Lystra. Approximately, I've heard anywhere from 20 to 50 and it's something to do with because they thought Lystra was in one location, Derby or Lystra, I can't remember which one. They thought it was in one location, but then they later found out that it might be in a different location. And so 
there's some discrepancy whether it's 20 or 50 miles and how do you get 20 or 50 it just just because that the, the location of that town so we'll just say we'll just say on the low end at least 20 miles so for us who occasionally run from time to time and you know I should definitely specify uh, a long time from time to time <laughs> I actually just ran two days ago and my legs man that's kind of what my point is is that I don't run very often and when I do man <laughs> my legs are sore and so it's two days later and I'm still walking like I just ran yesterday but it's a lot of times it takes two or three days for our, our leg muscles to stop being sore so I want to say is it so hard to entertain the idea that after these people attempted to murder Paul by throwing rocks at him, that in less than 24 hours, he might still have cuts, scratches, and bruising on his body? No. So I believe there were noticeable marks on Paul's face. So I, I mean, if I was trying to kill someone with rocks, if I was throwing an at him, you know, I, I would aim for their head. So just, just think about like a boxer. You know, they use padded gloves, you know, not a lot of padding, but there's some padding in there when they box. And, you know, you can get, to the end of the fight and one one guy's eye is just completely swelled shut and it's bleeding and it's i mean and it takes several days for that and it's black and blue and and that was with a padded glove let alone with jagged rocks that have been thrown at that person with the intent of of murdering them with killing them i mean it's probably pretty obvious that paul was hit in the face with rocks i mean it's not like they said let's kill him but let's not hit him in the face <laughs> you know I know I'm kind of going a little overboard on that, but all I'm just trying to say is he got hit in the face with rocks. He was just stoned, and a day later, he was preaching in Derby. So now when we go back to Galatians, and we're looking at Galatians 4, 14, when he says, my trial which was in my flesh, again, Paul had just showed up to them having been stoned the day before, and he was either dead or he was so close to dead that those people thought he was dead and they left him alone. So either way, there would have been visible, physical proof he was just stoned. And just think of the example like Jesus. Jesus met his disciples when he was resurrected and he went to the Father and he came back and he saw his disciples. Disciples, when he spoke to Timothy, he says, you know, put your hand in my side, you know, put your hand in the hole of the nail. And someone might say, even though I just gave the example of Jesus, someone might say, well, with Paul, if this was a miracle, there wouldn't have been any visible physical proof that he was just stoned you know why didn't the miracle just take away the marks and and again what i just referred to with jesus about thomas it was in john 20 verse 27 and it says then he said to thomas reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand the here and put it into my side do not be unbelieving but believing so even jesus after being resurrected still had the holes in his hands, his feet, and his side. So what was the miracle? Well, the miracle was that not only was Paul alive, but that he was able to stand up. And let alone was he able to stand up, but the next day he was able to walk or ride. It wouldn't matter if you just got stoned to death, you would be, you would be sore. But he was able to ride 20 miles to another town or walk 20 miles to another town. I believe he walked, but you know what I mean? It'd be hard enough to just walk 10 feet. Sometimes after I get done running and then it's the next day, it's tough to get out of bed and just walk to the bathroom, <laughs> let alone if I was just hit with the rocks with the intent of killing me. So in Galatians 4 verse 14, Paul says, You did not despise or reject 
And so what I want to take from this is the people who saw Paul didn't discredit what he had to say, even though his physical body was visibly beaten up. And they, they just basically, they still listened. And then Paul later says, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. So they received him having gone through something not the same, but similar to Jesus. So Paul was persecuted and they recognized him as being so committed that no matter what, he practiced what he preached. Galatians 4, verse 15. And this is where he says, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. And so I just want to share a thought with that. What I believe all this is saying was that this simply was an expression like if someone said that person would give their right arm for me. Does that mean that that person has a bad right arm? No, it's simply an expression to show they'd be willing to do anything for them. And this was just like how the phrase thorn in the flesh was was an expression the Jewish people were aware of and their ancestors used, just like we discussed. So as a recap, Paul didn't have an eye disease or any long-term eye issue with his eyes. The issue was that just the day before, he had been stoned. And after the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and the next day walked at least 20 miles to another town to further the gospel. And because he was just stoned the day before, he had visible marks. And it wouldn't be too hard to believe that he still had puffed up eyes due to the fact he just had rocks thrown at him. So the next one might be, so then how do you explain Galatians 6? Galatians 6 is used to go along with the idea that Paul had some sort of an eye disease. Galatians 6, verse 11. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. So you're probably waiting for me to read more than that. (laughs) But nope, that's it. That scripture is where this whole idea comes from. People have said that because of his eye disease, he had to write in super large print. And to go along with that, I'm assuming they think he had to write in really large print because his vision was so impaired that that's the only way he could see what he was writing. If someone were to believe that were true, then can you imagine how many pieces of paper he'd need to send a letter to the Galatians? I did a couple Google searches, and they said that Galatians has more than 3,000 words in it. Now, with how the New Testament back in Paul's day was written in Greek, I don't really know how that would translate. Maybe it'd be more. I don't don't know. But in the English language, again, this is Google— And I did a couple of them just to try and make sure, you know, one didn't say a thousand and then the other one said 50,000, you know, but, um, but it says over 3000 words in it. So I just want to point out, it's not like paper was as accessible as it is today. And I know this may be really elementary, but have you ever carried an eight by 11, you know, just the regular size paper? Have you ever carried just a package of paper? And I'm not even talking about a box. I mean, the boxes are like, 20 pounds or something like that and they're awkward and they're big you know what i'm saying but just just even just a package of paper you know they're not exactly light and that's when it's all evenly cut with the paper being as flat as can be and it's still in the packaging so it's like compressed together and maybe not compressed but it's like that's as lightweight as it could get now i remember being in school And when we had to turn in like an assignment that had like two or three pages of paper on it and you have anywhere from 25 to 40 people in your class and seeing that stack of papers on her desk and because they aren't all flat and they some of them got bends in it and some of it is crumpled and all that like seeing how high that stack of papers got with just 30 to 40 students with two or three pages each 
Now, the reason I'm saying that is like back in the day, back in Paul's day, what about the type of paper they had to use back then? And when I Googled it, now I knew that they had used parchment paper, which parchment paper was made up of animal skins, but there was also something called papyrus rolls. I don't know too much about that, but let's just look at the idea of like parchment paper. And I'm not trying to get too carried away here, but I'm just something to think about. Actually, a couple of weeks ago on PBS or a, a channel similar to that, they were actually showing how parchment paper today was made. And there was only like one guy, one business in, in this state or, you know, really only a couple in the world, I think they said. But at least this one guy was only in, in his region. And I'm not talking about like a county and like not very many people make parchment paper anymore. And so it, it's definitely quite the process. They had to skin the animals and then they had to take these and they soak them in something and it eats away at some of the stuff. And then he, he hangs it up and he's got to scrape off all the hair and all the, uh, you know, I'm not trying to gross you out here, but there's that. And then he's got to dry it and then he's got to do something else to it. And then he's got to scrape it some more. And then he's got like a special tool that like really finely scrapes it down to any anyways it's just quite the process so if all that went into making paper and again we're looking at the idea that paul had a disease in his eyes because of that one small phrase that he's used in galatians 6 11, see with what large letters i have written to you with my own hand and to be fair I think he said a similar phrasing like that in one, maybe two other parts of the Bible. But to make a doctrine out of that and say, yeah, see, Paul, he had a sickness in his eyes because he wrote that I'm going to write these big letters. You know that? Anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. But I just want you to consider, you know, that someone actually had to physically carry and deliver these lengthy letters. If, if it was a super long letter. If it was these many pieces of paper that he had to use because he had to write with such large letters because he had this eye disease. Can you imagine how long that would have been? If you just think about the math on that, if you take Galatians that has over 3,000 words in it, and let's say each word he had to write, you know, I don't know how many, he and he had to write them so big and he had all this paper, and he had to write these huge uh, letters on it, and again, it was written in Greek, but he had to write these huge letters on it and these huge words just so that he could fit it because he couldn't see it because he had this eye disease. Can you imagine how many pieces of paper, you know, if you think about it in the English language, if you took 3,000 and you divided it by just 10 words on a piece of paper, I believe the math is they'd be like 300 pages of paper. And it's not just like our lightweight paper. If you had parchment paper, it's like these big, you know, it, it just, and then if you think about it, it wasn't, he couldn't even get 10 piece, uh, ten words on a paper. Let's say he could only get three to five. You know, I mean, if you really break it down, we're talking a large amount, a large volume of paper just so he could write this letter to the Galatians. And so it just doesn't make sense. They couldn't just send this stuff electronically in an email. So to just wrap all that that thought up, to try and say that Paul's thorn in the flesh was an eye, dis eye disease or a sickness, in my opinion, on this logic, because of his large letters that he wrote, like quote-unquote large letters, I mean, it's flimsy at best and to me. And, and you know what? If you believe that to be true, I'm not, I'm not fussing with you. I'm just saying, I'm just trying to, you know, I hope that you can at least listen to this side of it and 
you know, whatever resonates with you. If you believe that to be true, then hey, if you love Jesus, that's, you know, what's the word say? To not get caught up in genealogies and, and stuff like that because it's just not profitable. And that's that's not the exact wording. But I'm not trying to fuss with you about a topic like this. But what I am trying to fuss with you about is that God is not the one bringing sickness and disease. The topic that we're discussing is the sovereignty of God. More specifically, how it is not the extreme sovereignty of God. Man, God is not the one to blame. The devil is the one bringing about destruction. It is God, it is Jesus that has come to bring us life and life more abundantly. So another, and I think it's our last objection, at its root goes against the idea that God's will for us is to be healthy. And I just mean to be healed of any and all sicknesses. And the truth is, God has already healed us. We're not trying to get healed. But that, a lot of the time, is the problem. We're trying to pray harder or we think we haven't done enough to get, quote-unquote, get God to finally give the okay for us to be healed. It's like he's, and I've mentioned this before, this example, but this idea is like he's sitting up in heaven at a desk deciding to heal or not to heal each individual that comes to him and the reason he heals this one is because they tried really hard or this one he he did they didn't try hard enough or or they're not holy enough and i mean what if in a situation like that that person did try really really hard and they were doing all things according to the best they knew how but god just decided nah i just won't heal them you know like that's crazy that is a terrible representation of a loving father because if i were a dad i wouldn't call my neighbor to run over my son out in the parking out in the out in the road because I told him to stay out of the road. You know, I wouldn't call my neighbor up and say, "Hey, I'm trying to teach my son a lesson. Will you run him over with your car before you go to work so that I can really teach him a lesson and say, "Hey, I told you not to play out there." You know, that's we wouldn't do that. That dad should go to jail. So on the topic of healing, what I'm saying is a lot of people just don't believe that healing is available. They think God is the one that that is in charge of that, that he's holding back on us. But he has given us everything through Jesus Christ. It was all purchased in the atonement. So our job in being healed is simply to receive. You know, our faith does not move God. God's already moved. Our part to play in healing or anything that we need is simply to receive. Now, that doesn't mean if we're talking about money, that we're not to be a good steward of what he gives us. You know, there's good choices to be made. We can't just go out and say, oh yeah, but by faith, I'm going to go buy this $50 million home and I've got, I've never even had a job before. You know, that doesn't, that goes against seed time and harvest. And that's the way that the kingdom of God works. But our part to play in healing specifically is, is by receiving. Our job is to receive. What does Hebrews 11.1 1 say? Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith is the substance. Faith is the substance of things expected. You know, it says the word hoped, but it, that's not like we talked about either in the last episode or the one before that. The word hoped doesn't mean this wish type of mentality that we now associate with that word hope. That word hope means to expect. Faith is is the substance. It's like what makes up our expectation of what we have, our expectation of what we know we will receive. 
because it is the evidence of things not seen. If we have something, we don't need faith for it because we've already got it. And the truth is, we already do got it. But faith is the substance of things expected, the evidence of things not yet seen. But again, I, you know, I know I just said it, but we've already got it. But in a nutshell, it's always God's will for us to be healthy. Again, 3 John 1, 2, and again, this all comes back to, is it really God's will for us to be in health? And First John, or excuse me, Third John one two says, "Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers." So go back and listen to part one, where we establish through Scripture that God really is good. So all that was to lead us to this this last argument to go along with Paul's thorn in the flesh, and it's where Paul instructs Timothy to drink a little wine to help with his stomach, and that's found in First Timothy five twenty three. It says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. So it's been taught that Timothy had a chronic sickness and he never got healed of it. So this is the only scripture to support this. There's no other scripture to compare it with. You can't take this one scripture and take, and so I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but you can't take this one scripture and make it say what you want it to say. And take from it and say, it's not always God's will to heal. Now, I agree, not everyone gets healed. But that's not because it's God's will. And I don't mean that to be insensitive. I'll just, you know, be personal with you. There's things I'm believing for that I haven't seen the manifestation of it yet. But I know I'm healed. An example of that is my eyesight. And let's look at Deuteronomy 34.7. It says, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. So it says his eyes were not dim, and that just means that he had good eyesight. And Moses was 120 years old when he climbed up on the mountain where he died. But what you can take away from that is he was 120 years old and he climbed a mountain. (laughs) Now the truth is the word says that I live in a better covenant than those in the Old Testament. So for me personally, I'm believing my eyesight completely restored. And right now, I'm currently wearing contacts or I'll wear glasses. And so I'm believing and I'm expecting that even though I, no pun intended, don't see it right now, that faith is my substance of the things I expect. I expect things to change. I know that they change. I know that they're, I'm already healed in the spirit realm. And the spirit realm is more real than what I see in the, in the natural realm. The spirit realm is what's true and what I'm experiencing in my five senses and in this life has to line up with the word of God. And I'm standing to that. But right now, currently, and I'm not saying this in in unbelief, I'm just trying to share with you that right now I still wear contacts and I still wear glasses. Along these lines, I just want to give a little example. Three to four years ago, I went to the eye doctor and this was right after I got this revelation. I'm starting to believe for it. And after my eye exam, the doctor was kind of fumbling through explaining what what was happening with my eyes. Now, maybe he explained it perfectly, but because it was like all Chinese to me, I didn't fully understand what he meant. But I kind of stopped him towards the tail end of it. And I said, you know, my eyes are getting better, aren't they? And he said, yes. Well, he reluctantly said yes, because I don't think he was trying to give me a false hope or whatever. But like I said, I had just started to believe and maybe it had been some time. I'm not trying to like, say like this was the next day or anything like that. But 
I had started to believe like, man, if Moses' eyes weren't dim, then why are my eyes dim? My, I live in a better covenant. In Jesus' name, I command my eyes to be whole and made the way that you designed them to be. I thank you, Lord, that I will not have glass. I, and I shouldn't even say will not. I thank you, Jesus, that I am healed right now. And where am I healed right now? It's in the spirit realm. And I'm still standing on that until I see it manifest in my physical eyes. But I'm not to be moved by my five senses. So after he had told me, yeah, they are getting better, but, you know, and then he, you know, he wasn't being rude or anything like that. I'm not trying to say that. But anyways, later on, he also started to talk about something he saw in one of my eyes that could lead to further complications and and I can't remember exactly what it is, but I don't I don't think it was blindness, but it was something something where it wasn't good in your eye. And he wanted to take another scan so that he could use it for future reference. Well, anyways, and I'm not trying to be harsh on this guy, but I knew that the guy was Mormon. And and when he said that, I didn't try to muster up faith or anything like that. But as soon as he said it, what came out of my mouth without even thinking was my God's bigger than that. <laughs> and I wasn't saying that to be mean to him or anything like that. It just it just came out of my mouth. It just it was the abundance of what was in my heart. And as soon as he heard that, I didn't rebuke him or say, you know, but just what came out. And I didn't even think about it. I said, my God's bigger than that. <laughs> and again, I wasn't trying to be all spiritual or anything like that. I wasn't prepared ahead of time to respond to a negative report he may give me. I wasn't expecting to get that sort of a response from him. It was something that was unexpected. But again, it just came out of my mouth without thinking. My God's bigger than that. Now, praise God, it's been a couple years. Like I said, that was three, four years ago. I've gotten new glasses since then. My wife actually works at that eye doctor's office. But I've gone there and that thing, um, they took another, not an x-ray, but they did another sight thing with me about that. It's not growing or anything like that. And, you know, anyways... But all what I'm trying to say is that God's not the one that's holding back from me. And this is, I'm talking about me right now. God's not the one that's holding back. It's on my end. I'm the one that has to receive. Jesus already did it. So I'm still growing in this. I'm not trying to act like I've got it all figured out. So I just want to point out, healing is already done in the spirit realm. I just have to receive it. So back to Timothy. So first, it's clear that this was an issue with his stomach because it says, for your stomach's sake. And it was in relation to drinking the water. So Paul's saying, stop drinking the water. It'd be better for you to drink wine. And I'll give another example real quick. Um, when my wife and I, when we went on our honeymoon, we went to the Riviera Maya in Mexico. And what do you hear when you go to third world countries or or you know wherever to these different countries where you're not used to drinking the water and it might have contaminants in it. What are you told? Well, don't drink the water. Drink bottled water. Water. Drink a pop. You know because ultimately, what is it called? And I think it's called Montezuma's Revenge or something like that, where you can get really sick. So from what Paul wrote to Timothy, you don't have to believe me, but I think that's much more grounded to say, hey, hey Timothy, you're having a little problem with the water. Just drink some wine. Stop drinking the water. Like, I don't know how you can take that. And I'm just talking from my own opinion. I don't know how you can take that and turn it into, well, if Timothy never got over this sickness in his stomach, because it doesn't say anything that Timothy had it for the rest of his life. Paul just said, stop drinking the water. 
But I don't know how we can take that and say, well, Timothy, he never got healed from that. Well, if Paul's right-hand man didn't get healed, well, then how could I get healed? Well, Paul, back to this thorn in the flesh. Well, if Paul had this thorn in the flesh and it was sickness, but we've looked at that it wasn't sickness, okay? That's not what that word infirmity meant. He was talking about in, in verses 23 through 28 in chapter 11, all the things that he endured and he was calling them infirmities. But the logic is, well, if Paul, if he couldn't get ailed, if he still had this thorn in the flesh and he asked God three times and God said, well, my grace is sufficient for you, it's just, it's just taken out of context. So kind of to wrap all this up, I hope that you got something out of these last six episodes as we've talked about the sovereignty of God. Again, God is sovereign. But it's so important that we're representing God the Father as the loving Father that He is, that we're not misinformed about the type of loving Father that God is. So if you've ever misrepresented God and the type of dad He is, you know, it's okay. God's not mad at you. I'm not mad at you. But it's important moving forward that we give a proper explanation of the type of Father that God is. Now, it doesn't mean we have to have all these things memorized or anything like that. But at the very least, we should be able to explain to someone, you know what? I know you're going through that terrible situation. I just want to tell you, God's not the reason for it. He doesn't do that. And you know what? If they ever bring up some of these things like the book of Job or Paul's thorn in the flesh or some of the things that we've we've touched on, come back and listen to this and, and get a few points here and there or, you know, or get a hold of some teaching you know, that's not mine. Go go to someone else. You know, maybe there's a certain type of way that someone will receive better from the way another individual presents this stuff. You know, maybe I'm not the right one for, you know, maybe this type of format that I'm using it and the way I speak isn't the way that will benefit them. You know, that's okay. But we've just got to be prepared in this day and hour that we live in to be able to represent God as the loving father that he truly is. Thanks for listening and join us again next time on the Abundance Podcast.